0: So we're going to look this morning at uh, John the Baptist, uh, which is a very appropriate um, uh, Advent um, sermon. I, I don't know what you know about John the Baptist. Probably, you, when you hear that word, you think of all those crazy Renaissance paintings, you know, of a guy who's out uh, doing things. Uh, they're probably inaccurate because they make him look a lot cleaner probably than he was since he lived out in the elements all the time. Um, don't know how he got those camel skins that he wore, but um, I guess a camel had to die to do that, right? So, um, uh, but, uh, and I don't know if you've ever eaten grasshoppers or locusts before, which was apparently his diet. They're not bad, fried with a little salt. Actually, uh, I envision John sitting out by the Jordan with a frying pan, uh, cooking up his, uh, uh, his locusts and eating them. Yeah, really, they're not bad. Not like chicken, like bacon. So of course it's good. Um, but um, uh, we need to see uh, his key role. Uh, in preparing uh, the way for the coming Messiah. Uh, but before I read uh, Mark chapter 1, uh, join me in prayer. Father, as we come to you today, as Kevin's already prayed, we um, uh, w- would miss your coming. And so you uh, prepare the way. Uh, I pray that you would help us uh, to um, hear and see the message that John brings. Uh, of pointing uh, his finger uh, at us and pointing uh, our hearts to you. So would you uh, bless us with that now we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Mark chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. The text is in the bulletin and also up on uh, the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. At the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So I I don't know uh, um, how uh, you think about John the Baptist. He's certainly an unusual character. Uh, He kind of bursts on the scene, we get a little bit of information about him, about his kind of unique conception and birth. We hear that uh, even in utero, he was responsive when uh, Mary came to visit his mother, Elizabeth. Uh, Elizabeth proclaimed that uh, John was jumping for joy uh, inside of her. And so uh, from a very early age, he must have known and, and must have understood Uh, the unique uh, role uh, that he had. Now, um, our theme for this Advent is wake up. And if that's our theme, then John the Baptist is the alarm clock, right? Uh, uh, I I don't know about you, um, I don't really use an alarm clock. Uh, I set one on my uh, phone uh, every night before I go to bed but I'm always up well before uh, the alarm goes off. Part of that's age, part of that's compulsion, and part of that is anxiety, frankly. Um, so uh, uh, I'm always terrified when I go to bed on Saturday night while I sleep through church, which is such a, you know, I'm sure a few of you would remind me. But um, the... the uh, uh, typical, what's typical for me on Saturday night is, you know, I've only been doing this for uh, almost 40 years, and I don't, I never sleep well on Saturday night, and uh, again, this morning, I woke up at 3.50, and it's always confusing this time of year, because it's so dark, so late, you know, you're like, oh, it must be time to get up, and I look at my phone, and it's 3.50, so then we get into the cycle. It's a familiar cycle, cycle I do, several times a week, almost all the time. So the reason why you wake up at 3.50 is not because your, your nap is out, as we say. It's not because you're, you're rested, it's because you're concerned. That's an easy word, concern. When I said anxiety before, I felt a lot of you tighten up, so I don't <laughs> want to use that word again. So, um, So you're concerned. So I'm thinking about all the things I did on Saturday, thinking about all the things I've got to do today. I worry about how in the world am I ever going to retire? I envision myself uh, as a sitting wrapped in a blanket in a cold house somewhere with no money, no food, no medical care all alone. It's funny how these things come to you in such stark detail at 3.50 in the morning. And then I start thinking about my kids, my grandkids, more concern. And then um, I'm thinking I've got uh, all the things that I have to get done today and I'm already thinking about my calendar. Uh, One of the gifts that I have is I have a great memory and so As I'm laying there with my eyes shut, I see the line of my calendar for the next week, and I see all the things that I've got written in there that I've got to get done. And then the kicker, the best part of waking up at 3.50 and needing to do all this is suddenly I hear in my head, you know, anxiety and concern and fear are sins. Thanks. Thanks for that. And why aren't you praying? Right, so then I pray, and then I lay there, uh, and this morning, ironically, you know, I don't know what God was doing, but I actually fell back asleep, and my alarm clock woke me up, which was another occasion for um, uh, thinking that, oh no, I slept to my alarm, I'm so lazy. What is wrong with me? Roll out of bed, make the coffee, Get to, the, uh, get to the church. The, the fact is, um, we need, uh, and God knows that we need, uh, spiritual alarm clocks to wake us kind of from the ruts, from the, uh, the fears, the anxieties, the guilt, those sorts of things. And John the Baptist is that in a big way for the people of God. Uh, he's uh, uh, in, in many, and in many ways. I was thinking about him this week that I I really th- uh, I really love John the Baptist. And one of the reasons why I think I love him so much, and I've grown to love him over the years, is uh, because he's just a man. He wasn't God in the flesh. He was just a guy. He was Zachariah and Elizabeth's son. No extra power in him in the sense that uh, he was divine or anything like that. He was just a man that God had placed a call upon. And so I think he's just a, a, a very... Uh, Profound figure. Now, one of the things we must uh, uh, remember about him too is that when he bursts onto the scene, as we'll read an extended uh, passage from Luke chapter three, he's still a relatively young man, Uh, and uh, uh, is is you know kind of an unknown quantity at least to the leaders and uh, to the people. So let's look at what Luke says about him in Luke chapter three. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ... John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to tie. untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing stick is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And Luke writes that without irony. I think that's, uh, you know, the axe is at the root. The chaff is getting burned. Good news, right? Uh, actually, it is great news. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and that he locked up John in prison. So, he's, what, what an interesting uh, message, what an interesting character that he bursts right out. Uh, Into the scene, and I think there's something. There's a little detail that Luke gives us here that tells us a little bit about John's personality. Not a lot, but it gives us an insight into him. One of the things that you you may think about John, and I thought this until I really picked up on this this week, is that that John is there living, you know, in uh, in and amongst people, and that sort of the call of God comes upon him, and he goes out into the wilderness. But what Luke tells us is John's already in the wilderness. John's already living apart from society when the call of God, when the word of God comes to him. And so I wonder about what kind of person he was. Did Was it easier for him to sense the call of God? Was it in, easier for him to sense the word of God and kind of away from people and in the quietness of of, uh, uh, of the wilderness? Was there something about him that drew him out there to begin with as he's living out there uh, uh, by himself? Um, I wonder too, uh, based on uh, what little we know about him, he must have been a different sort of character. Uh, I'm sure he distressed his mom and dad. You know, I don't, it doesn't seem like he's the kind of guy who has a lot of friends. You know, he wasn't uh, president of the Student Government Association at his high school. I'm certain he was quite uh, uh, an un- unusual uh, uh, character. We read about his strange diet and we read about his, his camel uh, clothes. And you know, that's, uh, even though there were prophets that dressed like that before, this is pretty unique. He stands out as a different sort of person. There's something else to note about him uh, as well, and something that is uh, super uh, important for us uh, to take away from this today, and that's this. When Luke tells us about John the Baptist, he lists him with Caesar, with Pontius Pilate, with Herod, with these other leaders, uh, with Annas and Caiaphas. Now, it's important for us to see that because one of the things that... um, uh, we need to see about that is, is that uh, we are, our attention is shifting here because what he introduces to us there is Rome, Jerusalem, the temple, right? All of those centers of power, all of those centers of culture, all of those centers of the way in which uh, the world works and, and are the kind of the places that people are drawn to the kind of places that make the headlines, the kind of people and places that seem to have the power and the ability to affect change in the world. <clears throat> they and, and it is it is something that I'm sure most people would have been attracted to the kind of people who are the kind of people that are mentioned here. Caesar, uh, the Roman governor, uh, uh, the the Roman puppet, Herod, right? And so... Uh, but the fact is, what we read here is, is that the Word of God, the work of God, really, through the Word of God, bypasses the cultural and politically powerful and the religiously powerful too. It's not that the Word of God comes through the halls of government. It's not that the work of God comes through these Means and people that we think are where it's at. The work of God, the center of the spiritual universe, the center of the attention of God, the very work that God is doing of preparing the way for his son begins in the wilderness by the Jordan River, not in Washington, D.C. or Richmond, Virginia. You see, one of the things that is so. Powerful to us about john and also about jesus is is that god shows up to do his work and his word is wildly uh, free and it doesn't come in and through those places that we think the primary work of god is done now maybe you'd say i don't believe the primary work of god is done in politics well then why do we spend so much time on it there I just think it's a, it's just such a profound thing for us to 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 come to grips with here because the fact is the work that God is doing the key work that God is doing the essential work that God is doing in preparing the way for his son starts in no, the middle of nowhere with a nobody a weird nobody an unusual nobody somebody who that we would probably think Uh, is the least likely person, the least attractive, maybe even the least gifted for this work to happen. But that's where it happens. Secondly, the other thing about John is John is not like any pastor I know. He is beginning a movement, right? And so what do you do as a religious leader to begin a movement? You go where the people are. You go to the street corners. You go where the suburbs are. You go to those places where there are a lot of people, and so, which is, you know, there's value in that. But John doesn't do that. John goes away from the people. He calls the people to himself. He is in the middle of nowhere. He is in the wilderness. And he begins a preaching ministry there in the middle of nowhere where there's hardly Anybody. You know, I, I, it, it, and it's, it's, it's a pretty important thing for us to see about that because, you know, the, the way we tend, or at least the, the sh- movers and shakers that I know about uh, are uh, guys, well, um, I, anyway, he's not that way. He calls the people to himself. So what was that like? He's out there preaching by himself out in the middle of the desert, out away from everyone else. Apparently, a handful of people come by and they hear him. And they hear his message. And they see him. And they're undone. Their lives are turned upside down. They cry out to him, what should we do? What can we do about this? What must be done? And John says, get down here in the water. Repent. Turn away. Right? And so, Apparently, what happened there is, it's not just that John gets an agent and he gets a book deal and he gets on a few uh, talk shows and begins to demonstrate this. No, he has something else going on for him. Because I believe what happens in the ministry of John the Baptist is the thing that builds to me and directs me to see the truth of the message of Jesus Christ, and it's this. Luke roots the story of John with a lot of historical detail. He mentions these historical characters and this this year and this time and this place. And that should build within us some confidence of the truth of the word of God. And that is a good thing. But the message of John bears witness to the truth because of one thing, I believe. And I think this is why a crowd of people ultimately gathered around him. Because I think what happened is a handful of people come to hear John, they repent, they get baptized, and when they come out of that water, they're changed. They're different. There are a lot of reasons to believe the gospel of God. There are a lot of reasons that we can say unabashedly, not unlike John, that this is the path This is the truth. He is the light of the world, Jesus Christ. But the most profound evidence that you and I have for the work of God in the world is a life that has been changed forever. You see, that's exactly what I think happened here. I think people heard John a handful at first and they go back to work and they go back to their neighborhoods and they go back to their dorm rooms and they go back to their apartments and they go back to the places where they live their lives. And people look at those tax collectors and those Roman soldiers and they say, you're not the same. What happened to you? What changed about you? Who changed you? You see, I think that's, the, 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 that's the, the very nature of spiritual power, the very nature of what, of what John the Baptist is doing here. And he is cutting people to the quick. And he is preaching to them a message of the absolute necessity of turning away uh, from, uh, uh, from themselves. Now, his message has three components. The first one is repent. Repent. Now, one of the things that we have to see about this is, is, is you know, we kind of chuckle when we read this because he is preaching this very direct and stark message to us that, uh, that, that the, the winnowing fork is in his hand, that the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and that that which is unfruitful, that which does not bear the fruit that repentance should lead to is already bound for the fire. It's such a heavy message. It's such a hard message. But here's the thing. It's a good message, and the reason why it is a good message is because John's message to you and to me, and even Jesus' message, when we read about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance involves certainly a fearless moral and spiritual inventory, yes, but that's only one step. That's the first step, and it is an essential step. And I want to say something to you that you probably uh, uh, is going to seem contradictory, and that's this. The message of repentance is designed to cause you to despair. Not despair of woe is me, but to to the despair of seeing and recognizing your sin and the fact that you and I live and breathe in a world full of sin. That we are part of a culture that is full of sin. That we live among people, as the prophets say, with sinful lips. That we are caught in this. That we are stuck in it. And though we are technologically advanced, though we are super smart, super gifted, and we find all sorts of ways to manage this, in the end, The pathway to life is to despair of any human machine, any human uh, contraption, any human idea that can deliver us from that thing which is killing us. And that thing which is killing us is our sin. And so to begin to realize I have to let go of all these things that I hold on to that I believe are going to save me is the pathway to begin to find the kingdom of God. It is the pathway to begin to find the truth. And the truth is that we despair of our own righteousness, our own doing, our own ways of of managing this, and we see that there's only one way, that there's only one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. That when we entrust ourselves to him, Our repentance begins to bear the fruit of faith and joy and love and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness. You see, that's what he's getting at here. And so, so this hard message that he is preaching is the message to get us to take our eyes off of ourselves, to, take our, to lift our burdens off of ourselves, and to see that the solution, indeed the pathway to life, is not found in and of ourselves and in a way of our own making, but it has to come from outside of ourselves. And thanks be to God, God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ to deliver us from this world of death. Secondly, he says to be baptized. Now, baptism was not unknown. Uh, You can read in the Old Testament about all sorts of ritual washings. But what John is doing is something unique. First of all, he's not going to the baths in the temple. He's not going to the baths and the homes of people. He is meeting people in the wilderness, standing there in the Jordan River. And as they come to him, they uh, are repenting of their sins. Now, now, baptism was used with this kind of washing. Was used primarily as an initiatory rite, as an entryway into the, the to the Jewish religion for Gentiles. But what John is doing is he is initiating people, who are Jewish people primarily, into a new life of repentance, looking for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is something unique, something completely different, and something, again, completely unexpected. And then thirdly, what we know about his message is he is saying to look for someone else because John's baptism is only in water. Yes, there needs to be clean, cleansing. And yes, there needs to be this marker that we, uh, that we have of ourselves, that, that our lives have been turned around, that Jesus has come and that he has set us apart. But the changed life, the fruit of repentance, is born in us by and through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Because what happens to us when we entrust ourselves to God, when we take Jesus at his word, when we hear the word of the cross, what happens to us is we are immediately indwelt in that moment by the Holy Spirit. And that is what bears the fruit in us that changes us, that bears witness to the one who has changed us, that comes to us in our need, and in our brokenness the holy spirit only fill, fills broken vessels and he doesn't leak out he spills out right and so it's a it's a it's a, a pretty uh, a powerful thing for us to see that and to see what a unique and powerful ministry uh, that he has there. Because what happens to every one of us, we might content ourselves with simply thinking, I just need to clean the outside. I just need a little moral improvement. And what Jesus is saying and what John echoes to us is, I'm not having it. You have to be completely redone. And in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to us and makes hateful people, loving people, makes selfish people less self-thinking people. He takes people like me and you, and our anxieties and our fears and our self-focus, and he changes us forever. Next slide. And what John does is is something that is completely uh, unexpected and unlooked for, and that's this. You know, here he is, suddenly there's a crowd of people coming out there. We read in the Gospels that almost everyone from the surrounding communities, when word gets out about John, they come. Some certainly come because they've been uh, uh, convicted of their sins. Some come because they want to have their burdens lifted. And some come simply because of curiosity, because it's the thing to do. It's a place to go. And the cool kids are all talking about John the Baptist, so I'll go uh, check him out. But the unique thing about John is John is not building something for himself. At the height of his notoriety, at the height of his popularity, what does he say? He must increase and I must decrease. That's one of the ways that we know that he has a unique calling and a unique place in the history of God's kingdom, because even though he is having this powerful and profound ministry, what he realizes and what he understands is that he is simply a messenger, and he is simply a preparer. He is simply there following the call of God to prepare the people of God for the thing, indeed, the person that they really need, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what he does, and that's what he's about. And John ends up paying for his truth-telling, doesn't he? He ends up in a prison and ultimately martyred for the truth that he proclaimed. What a, what a guy. What a, what a remarkable guy. Do you need a messenger to come before you? to wake you up to the reality of the coming Jesus? Do you need someone to knock you out of the rut that you're in, to alert you to your spiritual danger, and to overwhelm you with the goodness and the grace of God? Probably you think you don't. I'm sure Annas and Caiaphas didn't think they needed it. Tiberius didn't need it. He had the world by the tail, literally. And Herod was so busy maintaining his own station and his own uh, place in life, he didn't have time for this either. Yeah. 48 people are coming to my house in 26 minutes. That's one of the reasons why I was up at 3.50 this morning. Yesterday, I had to do a memorial service. I was gone the better part of the morning, and when I arrived home, we had visitors. Even though they knew that we were scrambling around, trying to clean the house up, trying to get our act together for the people coming to our house, they stayed, and they stayed, and they stayed, and they stayed. Didn't know what to do. I thought, i got to really blow these leaves up or people are going to track the leaves in the house and my wife will have intestinal issues if uh, if people, it makes her nervous when we track leaves in the house. And so we can't do that. I wonder if I should just get the leaf blower and start blowing the leaves while they're here visiting us. Now that would be rude. So I took my grandson up to the attic and we were playing with Legos, partly playing with Legos. I was thinking about, I love you, it's awesome you're here and you need to leave. <laughs> I, hope, I hope I wasn't communicating that in my behavior. Just as he opened up his uncle's bin of 3,000 plastic soldiers, and dumped them out on the floor. I did not sin with my lips, I did not. I must have sighed though, because my grandson looked at me from across the attic and I looked at him and he said, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Was he John the Baptist? Was he reminding me in the midst of my impatience and my anxiety and my anger and my worry and my concern and my selfish turned in on myself that there's something greater, someone greater something better, someone wonderful who is mindful and close and dear, who sees me in all of my mess and still calls me to himself with words of grace and peace and joy because he is my grace my joy, my peace. You see, that is the message that John delivers to us today. And I worry that we're too proud, too self-sufficient, too burdened, too concerned with our own affairs. And maybe that we just have too much of everything to see the love of God for us in hearing this message, to repent and to turn and to look to the Lamb of God, who takes away our sin, indeed the sin of the world. So I came across this quote uh, from uh, Don Carson, a New Testament scholar that uh, strangely encouraged me and uh, challenged me this week. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. You know, that's Jesus with charts, right? If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, which none of us would ever admit that, but I wonder if our use of time, energy, and money would belie that. He would have sent us a comedian or an artist If God had since perceived that our greatest need was political victory and stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was physical help, he would have sent us a doctor. But he, rightly, perceived our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him and each other, our profound and determined rebellion leading to certain death, And so he sent a messenger and then a savior. See, you should see in that, dripping from those words, the tender mercy of a God calling uh, to his wayward children. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, "'Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover.' "'When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, "'and he said to them, "'I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. "'For I tell you, I will not eat it again "'until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God.' "'After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, "'Take this and divide it among you. "'For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine "'until the kingdom of God comes.' And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And I assigned you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Let's confess our sins together. Almighty and merciful Father, we come to you at Advent with the brokenness of the world in our eyes, the cries of injustice, loneliness, and sadness in our ears, and the rebellion and failure of sin in our hearts. O promised Christ, we are a world at war. Our peace depends on your coming. We are an unfulfilled, longing people our hope depends upon your coming. We are a sinful people. Our pardon depends on your coming. Lord Jesus, word made flesh, forgive our sins, comfort our hearts, and lift our eyes to look for your glorious return with hope and joy. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear these words of encouragement. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Your warfare's ended. Your sins are pardoned. The penalty for your rebellion is paid. The scriptures tell us, on the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he broke it, just as I do now, ministering in his name, and he gave it to his followers. Your sins are pardoned. The penalty for your rebellion is paid. Uh, What we do when we eat this bread and we drink this cup is we are declaring uh, that our sins are pardoned. We are declaring that the penalty for our rebellion is paid. Sin, rebellion, hard words, tough words. But what's greater than those tough words is the provision that has been made for us in Jesus Christ. We rest in the fact, we rest in the knowledge that Jesus has fully paid for all of our sins, even the ones you're not even aware of. And we rest in that. Because what we see in John the Baptist and what we see even greater Uh, in the work of Jesus Christ is God's commitment to tell us the truth about ourselves, but not to leave us there, but to take us to his rich provision so that there is true and lasting, even eternal, comfort for sinners, for rebels, for those of us who would seek our own way. Jesus makes and is the way for us to God. That's our hope. Um, That's our uh, profession. If that is true of you today, if that is your trust, uh, then uh, and you have proclaimed that to a body of believers somewhere, Jesus Christ himself, who is our sacrifice, sets this table before you, and he urges you to take comfort today in his atoning sacrifice by eating this bread and drinking this cup and proclaiming by doing so that your warfare is ended, that your sins are paid for, and that you are free to live and breathe eternally because Jesus loved you that much. As uh, the elders come down front to assist me today, let me remind you that uh, the outer ring is wine. Uh, The inner rings are grape juice. Underneath each cup is a wafer of gluten-free bread. Uh, If you're unable to come down front, please raise your hand and we'll see to it that you get served. Uh, Once everyone has been served... Uh, We will eat and drink uh, together.